you have a copy of God's Word this morning, please turn in it to the book of Isaiah. We are going to look at, again at Isaiah 53, finish up what we started last week. Our focus this week will be on verses 10 through 12, but to get the context of the entire passage, I am once again going to read all the way from chapter 52, verse 13, down to the end of 53. So if you would, in your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 52, starting at verse 13, and we will read this together. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, this is the word of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So I ask that out of respect for him, you stand at the reading of his holy word. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Thus he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him. For what had not been told them they will see, and what they had not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we, we pray that uh, as we look uh, into your word, as we have been exhorted uh, through the, the book of James, uh, that we would not forget what kind of men or women we are, that we would leave here transformed, that we would not be short-sighted, 
Lord, the scriptures tell us that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword, that it divides into the, our, our very thoughts. And uh, we pray this day that you would do that very thing, that it would be you who speaks through your word at this time, and that you would uh, dig down deep into our very souls and transform us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All right, so we're returning this week uh, to this marvelous chapter of Scripture. Uh, Last week we uh, began to look at it. Uh, I noted that uh, scholars of Isaiah uh, have identified four sections within the the, uh, prophecy of Isaiah that they call the servant songs. Uh, This uh, is considered the the fourth and final servant song that speaks of the servant of the Lord, the, the servant of Yahweh. And we see that at the beginning of of this passage is that it says, Behold my servant, my servant will prosper. And we looked last week and we saw that there was this pattern of suffering and glory. We saw that in in Peter when he spoke about the prophets who looked back at the, the prophecies that they had given and that they would inquire into their own prophecies to try to figure out who or what time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was prophesying. And it says, as he was prophesying about the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. We also saw that Jesus on the road to Emmaus, when he walked with the disciples and he opened the scriptures to them, all of the scriptures from the the law and the Psalms and the prophets, that he said, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and then to enter into his glory? So we were were looking at these, these themes of suffering and glory that uh, the the, the great headings of the prophecies of of Christ in the Old Testament, that they speak of his sufferings and his glory. And I wanted us to consider in this passage the the truth that Jesus suffered for our sins and entered into glory. That's, That's the point of the passage, that Jesus Christ suffered for our sins and entered into glory. Last week we focused on the sufferings of Christ in verses 1 through 1 through 9. Uh, we saw that as the servant of the Lord, uh, we saw his rejection in verses 1 through 3, that he was rejected by men. If you recall, that they had certain expectations of what the Christ should look like, and because he didn't fit the mold, he didn't uh, fit what they thought he should look like, that they despised him, they did not esteem him, they thought him as, as being of no value, and they rejected him. In verses 4 through 6, we saw the burden of the servant, that great and and grievous load that Jesus bore upon the cross as he bore our sins upon himself, as he took our sins upon his his, his own person and suffered and died for us upon the tree. And in verses uh, uh, verses 7 through 9, we saw the sufferings of Christ as, as we saw the oppression of the servant, that Jesus was oppressed by men, that in an unjust way they they tried him and put him to death even though he was innocent and that brings us now to the second portion of of this passage of scripture where we are going to look at the glories of of christ so last week we saw the suffering servant this week in verses 10 through 12 we're going to look at the glorified servant there will be a three-part outline it's going to follow uh, each verse so it should be very simple for us to follow The first is in uh, verse 10, we're going to look at the prosperity of the servant. Next, in verse 11, we'll look at the satisfaction of the servant. And then finally, in verse 12, we will look at the inheritance of the servant. So let's, let's start now by looking at the prosperity of the servant. 
So at the, at the end of uh, uh, verses 7 through 9, we saw that Jesus received a proper burial, that it was the beginning of, of starting to look into his glories, that because he was innocent, because he had done no violence, because he had done no deceit, uh, that God uh, honored him with a proper burial to ensure that he would see no corruption, that he did not receive the burial of, of the criminals, that the dogs did not eat his flesh, the, the birds did not feed upon him. And so we, we, we begin to even see now in, in that last section of, of uh, 7 through 9 the glorification of Christ in his burial. But we, we also saw that, that there was a human element to the sufferings of Christ, that the rulers and the priests, even Pilate and the Romans, were, were oppressing him and that they, they had a hand in putting him to death. But they weren't the only agents that were involved in the death of Christ. And we see in, uh, we see in verse 10 that the Lord was involved in putting uh, Christ to death. As it says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. You see, there's that word grief again. Recall, we saw it last week in verse 3 where it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Also in verse 4 it says, surely our griefs he himself bore. And now here once again we see that it is the Lord who puts him to grief. If you recall, I, I, I showed us last week that this word really means to be sick. And it can also mean to, to be wounded. It can refer to physical uh, uh, maladies, whether we're thinking of, of sickness as we usually think of sicknesses. But it can also refer to a wound. If you remember Ahab, that, that, that troubler of Israel uh, in the northern kingdom, when the, the man at random drew his bow and shot the arrow and it went into the armor of Ahab, it says that he was wounded. It literally says he was, he was made sick. And so here the Lord is pleased to crush, crush his servant and to make him sick, to wound him, to put him to grief. What a strange statement, is it not? To, to, to hear that it pleased God to, to crush his own son? Is this not the servant of the Lord? The one who always did his will? Who, who always did what is pleasing in the sight of, of, of the Lord? And now here it says that it, it pleased him to crush him? It pleased him to put him to grief? How are we to understand this? Is it that God is some, some, some sick, demented father who delights in punishing his children? Look, any of us who are, 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 are fathers or mothers understand how unpleasant it is to have to discipline our children. I know for my own self, I do not take delight in it. I do it because I, I understand that I need to be faithful to do it, but I don't take delight in it. So how are we to understand God being pleased to crush Jesus? What, what exactly does this mean? We ought to understand that what, what it's referring to is that, that God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Christ. That, that God is a God of justice and that God has a, has, a, has a law. And all the way back in the garden, he told Adam and Eve, in the day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. That the wages of sin is death. And in order for, for God to be satisfied, in order for his law to be satisfied, a death must occur. Uh, must occur. And so when we see here that it, it pleased the Lord to crush him, it pleased the Lord to grieve him, we ought to understand that it, it satisfied God's demands of justice. It was, it was enough for, for God to, to sacrifice Christ. And we, we, we read on other places of Scripture that, that it, it sacrifice is not pleasing to him. 
that the sacrifices of, of, of blood, of, of goats and, and bulls are not pleasing to him. Hebrews 10, 4 through 7 says it is impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sins. Listen, this is therefore when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So on the one hand, God is not pleased with, with, with bulls and goats and, and lambs because they cannot take away sins. It was necessary for, for a man to die. And that's why Jesus, when he comes into the world, says he recognized that God was not pleased with those things, but he would be pleased with him, that he would be pleased with the sacrifice of Christ. And we see the sacrificial language in this, this, this verse. So the sacrifices of the Old Testament were pictures of Christ's sacrifice. And they, they, so it wasn't enough to have the picture. There must be the substance. And we see that in verse 10, where it says, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. If he would give himself as a guilt offering. If Christ would, would be the sacrifice. And, you know, English translations are, are good. You should have a, a lot of confidence in, in the English translations you have. The NASB is a very good translation. But at times there are things that are lost. There's a reason why there's the phrase, lost in translation. And this is one of them. If you have the ESV, it gets a little closer. The ESV says, listen, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. So do you see the difference? The NASB says, if he would offer himself. The ESV says, if, he would, if his soul would make an offering. The King James, when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. The NIV, and though the Lord make his life an offering for sin. And the reason why I'm stressing this is for two reasons. One is because it literally says, if his soul would make an offering for sin, is what it says. And the word soul is used three times in this passage. First, it's used in verse 10 there. It's used again in verse 11, as you know, if you'll, if you'll note, as a result of the anguish of his soul. And then again in verse 12, where it says, because he poured out himself to death, it literally says, because he poured out his soul. So three times the soul is mentioned. And why, why is this important? Why is it important that his soul is what is offered for sin? Well, this is the word that's used in the book of Genesis. When it says, The Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or a living soul. It's the life-animating principle of man. And it is the same word that's used in the book of Leviticus where it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life, by reason of the soul, that makes atonement. That it is, it is the, the animating principle in man, the soul, that, that, that must die. That, that the life is in the blood, and that God had given the blood upon the altar in order to make atonement for our souls. And we noted, we noted last week that it wasn't enough for Jesus simply to believe that he had to die. He had to lay down his life. And that's what it's teaching us here. It's the same word that is used in the book of John where he says, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That, that in the translation of the Hebrew into Greek, it's the same word. So we are to note something here. That it is Jesus in, in dying upon the cross that he laid down his life 
that he laid down his soul, that he made his soul an offering for sin, and that this was pleasing to God, that it, it was satisfactory to him, that it took away his, his need for justice because a life had been given. The wages of sin is death, and a life had been paid. A death had been given. And that God, his wrath had been appeased. All of his wrath and anger towards sin was satisfied. And it's, it's so important for us to, to understand this, brethren. Because so, so often in our lives, we are, we are striving to try to please God, are we not? And there is a degree, in a sense, that that is good. That if we are, are, are seeking to please God out of a proper motive out of, out of uh, a love for him, out of acknowledgement that he has saved us from our sins, that is a good thing. But listen, if we are striving and seeking to please God in order that we might earn eternal life, or we might earn our way to heaven, or we might earn his favor and love through our good works, that is not pleasing to him. There is one sacrifice that is pleasing to God, and it is the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was pleased to crush his son. He is not pleased with your own self-abasement. He is not pleased with our own self-flagellation and our own uh, uh, works. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. And if we could but grasp this, how much peace it would bring to our souls. Listen, God is the judge. God is the judge. You are not the judge of your own soul. And I, I know I'm failing to communicate this, but there's, there, there, was, there was a time in my life where this, this, this just became so clear to me that I need to stop judging myself. I need to come to the place in my life where I realize God is the judge of my soul. God is the judge of your soul. And if God has said that it's enough that Jesus died, that I am pleased with his sacrifice, I am satisfied, then we ought to be satisfied too. So I ask you today, are you pleased with the sacrifice of Christ? Is it enough for you? Is it enough for you that he died? It's enough for God, so it ought to be enough for you. So we're, we're looking at, at the fact that Jesus is, has prospered, that Jesus has satisfied the Father, and we see that further in the second half of verse 10. It says, if he will render himself as a guilt offering... He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. There's that phrase, that, that the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And notice what it's saying. It's saying, if he will do this, if he will offer himself as a sacrifice, if he will place his soul upon the altar, not the altar on earth, but the altar of heaven, if he will give up his life for his people, then he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. That Jesus, I mean, think about this. It says that he will see his offspring. Jesus didn't have a wife. Jesus wasn't married. He didn't have any children. So what is this offspring that he is going to see? What is it exactly that, that, that is being referred to here? Well, we read in the book of, of Hebrews that it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. That Jesus brings many sons and daughters into glory. There, there will be a, a host of people in heaven. You know, there's that the, the, the saying of Jesus where he says, many are called and few are chosen. And sometimes we think that there'll just be a few people in heaven. 
But no, there will be a host when we read in the, the book of Revelation that there will be many sons and daughters, that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation, an innumerable host, myriads upon myriads, that Jesus, as a result of his sacrifice, brings many people into glory. We are worshiping God today. The theme is that he is our father. And Jesus is our brother. He is our brethren. He said he is not ashamed to call his brethren. He, he is the one who causes us to be adopted. That, that, that we might be conformed to his image. And that he might have many brethren. So we, we, we see the glory of Christ and that he brings many into glory with him. That he, he has an offspring. But it also says that he will prolong his days. I know this isn't a, a, an explicit reference to the resurrection of Christ, but it's certainly an implicit one, that we ought to see the resurrection of Christ here because dead people do not see their offspring. Dead people do not prolong their days. And remember, this is after he has rendered himself. This is after he has placed his soul upon the altar. This is after he has died. It says, if he will do that, then as a result, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. That part of Jesus' glory is that he would not remain in the grave. That if he would give up his life, that he would have it restored to him after three days. That he would rise again from the dead. That he would ascend to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. That he would sit at the right hand of God in his heavenly session, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. Revelation chapter 1 says, I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Romans chapter 6, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. That part of Jesus' glory, part of his prosperity, is that he satisfied the Father, that, that God acknowledged his sacrifice by raising him from the dead, by giving him eternal life that he might live forever and ever, that death would no longer have dominion over him, that he would conquer death, that he would have the keys of death in Hades, and that he would open the gates of hell and death for all who believe in him, and that all who trust and believe in him would live forever and ever with him. The prosperity of the servant of the Lord in accomplishing salvation. And we see it in that final phrase where it says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I love that. Jesus succeeded in doing the good pleasure of the Lord. We ought to ask ourselves, what is the good pleasure of the Lord? What is it that Jesus succeeded in doing? Well, we know from Ephesians chapter 1 that God has predestined us according or before the foundation of the world through Jesus Christ unto adoption of sons and daughters according to the good pleasure of his will. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that a, a, a wonderful verse? Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus said in John chapter 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That that was the mission. That God sent the Son into the world and said, this is my good pleasure. I want you to accomplish salvation. Here is the elect. Here are my people. I want you to die for them, and I want you to lose not a single one of them, and I want you to raise them up on the last day. And Jesus in his high priestly prayer says, I glorified you on the earth, 
having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. That Jesus succeeded, that the good pleasure of the Lord prospered in his hand. That's why I, I, I think it's so contrary to, to biblical Christianity when people say you can lose your salvation because I don't quite think they understand what, what it, it means in relation to, to, to Christ and the Father. Because the Father had, had summoned Jesus. He had sent him on a mission to accomplish salvation. And it says that, 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 that Jesus accomplished it, that he succeeded. He did the work of the Father, that the good pleasure of the Lord prospered in his hand. But if he were to lose one, if he were to lose but one, he would have not have completed the mission that the Father had sent him to do. So this ought to give us great encouragement, brothers and sisters. This ought to encourage our souls that Jesus accomplished the mission, that the servant prospered, that the good pleasure of the Lord prospered in his hand. So the first way we see the glory of the servant of the Lord is in his prosperity, in his, in his success, in the fact that he succeeded in accomplishing all that God had sent him to do, that he appeased the, the wrath of God, that he satisfied the justice of God, and he brought about salvation for his people. The next way we see the salvation, or excuse me, the glorification of, of the servant is in verse 11 when we look at his satisfaction. Look with me at verse 11. It says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. There's that word again, soul. As a result of the anguish of his soul, that Jesus suffered not only the, the physical pain of being beaten, of, of being whipped, of being crucified, but he also had torments in the inner man. Matthew 26, then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. John chapter 12, now my soul has become troubled. That Jesus had great anguish of soul in the inner man as he considered not only that he would have to face death, but he would have to face the wrath of Almighty God. This one who all his life experienced the pleasure of the Father, knowing that when he went to the cross, that the Father's good pleasure would turn from him as he became the one who bore the sin of his people and that the wrath of Almighty God would be poured out upon him. Just think of the, the anguish of soul that he went through as he, as he faced the cross. But what I love about this verse is if you look at it, it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. That Jesus looks at his, at his struggles, he looks at all that he went through, and he's satisfied with it. It's part, of his, it's part of the glorification of the servant that he gets pleasure and, and joy from the accomplishment of what he, he went through. And, and, and what it, it, it's saying is that it, it brings him joy in what he accomplished. Have you ever gone through a, an arduous project? I don't know what it might be. Maybe building a deck, installing a floor, uh, uh, knitting a blanket, something that takes a lot of work and a lot of time. And at the end of it, you step back and you look at it and you admire your work and you say it was worth it. It was worth all the toil. It was worth all the struggle. That's what's being said here. That Christ, when he sees you in glory, when he, when he, when he looks into eternity and he knows that you will be with him forever and ever, that it, 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 the, the joy of his soul in knowing what he accomplished, he looks back on the cross and he says, it was worth it. It was worth it. All that anguish was worth it. 
There is no buyer's remorse. Have you ever, have you ever bought something that's expensive and then afterwards you say, ah, I paid too much for this. That's my life story, just so you know. Ask my, ask my wife. That is my life, my life story. But sometimes you buy something that's, that's expensive and you know all the toil and all the labor and all the hours of work that went into it and you enjoy it and you're satisfied with it and you say that this was worth it. Listen, family of God, that's how Christ thinks about you. There is no buyer's remorse. He looks at the anguish of his soul. He looks at all that he went through to, to, to purchase you from sin and from Satan and from hell and from destruction. He knows the glory that awaits you. And he says, it was worth it. He is satisfied. He is satiated. It is sufficient for him. Not only is the father satisfied in the sacrifice of the son, but the son is satisfied in what his sacrifice accomplished. The salvation of our souls. And we see that in, in the second part of verse 11, where it says, By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Jesus is the righteous one. Jesus is the servant. There are many verses in, in the New Testament that speak of, of Jesus being the righteous one. Acts 3 says, But you disowned the holy and righteous one. Acts 22, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one. Acts 7 says they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. Jesus is the righteous one, and he is the servant. He is the servant of the Lord, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, it says, will justify the many. Now, I know that we are reformed and Calvinistic, and we have the Westminster Standards, and we speak about justification, and I'm sure that you all know this, and I'm bringing calls to Newcastle, but I'm going to explain it again, because it's important for us to understand this, that the, the Bible teaches that, some, that something happened, that two things happened at the cross. Not only were our sins placed upon Christ, we saw that last week, right? All of us like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has, has laid the iniquity of us all upon him. At the cross, God took our sins and placed them on Jesus. Jesus, who was innocent, who had never sinned, was treated as if he were a sinner, and he was punished for his people. But another thing happened at the cross, and that is God took Jesus' perfect life, his righteousness, and he transferred it to us, that all who believe in him have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. And just as God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner, even though he isn't or wasn't in, in and of himself, God treats us as if we are righteous, even though in and of ourselves we are sinners. That there is this great exchange at the cross, that Jesus gets our sin, we get his righteousness. Jesus gets our imperfect life, we get his perfect life. And that's what it, it means when it says that the righteous one, by his knowledge, will justify the many. It's a judicial term. It's a, it's a term of judgment that when God looks upon the one who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ, he has already announced the final judgment upon that person. And the verdict is not guilty. The verdict is just, righteous, innocent. Do you understand that? Do you understand that if you are trusting in Christ, if you believe in Christ, that this very moment when God looks upon you, he looks upon you as if you are blameless. Do you believe that? Do you live like that? Do you live as though Christ's righteousness has been given to you? Hear this passage. 
By his knowledge, the righteous man, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Same word, bear their iniquities, as we saw last week, speaking of the burden and, and the load of Christ, where it says he, he bore our sicknesses, when he bore our pains. Here we get a little bit clearer understanding exactly what he was bearing. He was bearing our iniquities. He lifted our iniquities from us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's two sides of the same coin. We have the forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. God removes our sins from us and he declares us as if we are just. Let's, let's live in light of that truth. Okay, so the second point of the glorification of, of Christ is that he is satisfied. The first is that he prospered in bringing about salvation. And the second is that he gets to enjoy the fruit of his labor, the anguish of his soul in, 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 in justifying many, in bringing men, many sons and daughters into glory. And then finally, we see the, the, the third aspect of the glorification of Christ in verse 12, where we look at the inheritance of the servant. Look again at verse 12. It says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It says that, that he will have a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong. That Christ, having been raised from the dead, has, has become heir of all things. Psalm 2, Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. That Jesus is the heir of all things. That Jesus, as a result of the anguish of his soul, as a result of the fact that he placed his soul upon the altar as a guilt offering, because he poured out his soul to death, literally is what this says, because he exposed his soul to death, that he will receive a portion with the great, and then listen, he will divide the booty with the strong. Dave already alluded to this, that we have an inheritance, that Christ divides the spoils with his people. It says in Romans 8 that if we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. Do you understand that? That all that is Christ, he shares with us. That he has made us co-heirs with him, sons and daughters, adopted into the family of God, brought into the number, and that we receive all the rights and privileges of, of, of being sons and daughters, including an inheritance. That Jesus, who has the, the heir of all things, Jesus, as a result of his, of his anguish and his suffering, has been exalted and has received the, the nations as his inheritance. He divides it with us. He shares it with us. Though he was rich, he became poor, that many might become rich through him. Oh, if we could but grasp that. You know, it's, it's not uh, uh, false to say that if you are believing in Christ, you are far richer than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, or anyone else in this world. Not only because you have God as your treasure and as your inheritance, but because you are an heir of all things through Jesus Christ. You are a co-heir with him. And look here, it says, the reason why, why did he receive this inheritance? It's because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus himself quoted this verse in, verse in Luke 22. He says, For I tell you that this, that that which is written of me must be fulfilled, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. 
that though Jesus was innocent, though he would never committed a sin in his entire life, he was numbered with the transgressors. He was reckoned to be a transgressor. Just as we are reckoned to be righteous, he was reckoned to be a transgressor. And it says, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. What a, what a wonderful way to, to end this passage, to end the section where it says that he interceded for transgressors. Listen, he did not intercede for the righteous. He did not intercede for the just. He did not intercede for those who are perfect. Jesus said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Romans 4 tells us, but to him who does not work, listen, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. That Jesus interceded for transgressors. And what that means is if you are a transgressor, if you are a sinner, that his, that his intercession is for you. Listen, brethren, you do not need to be perfect to come to Christ. If you are perfect, if you are righteous, you have no need of his death. You have no need of, of, his, of his offering upon the altar of heaven. But if you are a sinner, his, his intercession, his sacrifice is for you. Okay, so we've seen this marvelous passage, these two great themes of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that follows. We saw his sufferings last week. This week we looked upon his glory in seeing that he satisfied the Father, that he prospered in accomplishing salvation, that he was, uh, receives a, a joy and satisfaction in, in the anguish of his soul, knowing that it accomplished the salvation of his people, and that he would also become the heir of all things, glorified far above all else, receiving the name above all names, having been risen again from the dead, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So as we wrap this morning, I want you to look one more time at verse 1 of chapter 53. It's the same place we ended last week, same place we're going to end this week. And it says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the message of salvation. This is the gospel, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead. That Jesus who suffered is the one who has entered into glory. And so I ask you this day, have you believed the message? Has the power of God to save been revealed to you? There is no other name given under heaven. There is no other name given among men whereby we might be saved. It is only through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through him. Have you trusted and believed? Okay. We, we've talked a lot from this pulpit about the different types of faith, the, distinct, the distinctions of faith that are made both in the scripture and in theology. And there are three types of faith. There is what is called knowledge, what is called assent, and what is called trust. It is not enough to know what I have just told you. It is not enough for you to know that Jesus lived on this earth, that he died on the cross, that he suffered, that he rose again from the dead. It is not enough to know those facts. Indeed, it is not even enough to assent to them, to say, yes, I agree. I, I agree that Jesus was a man, that he lived on this earth, that he died on the cross, that he rose again from the dead, that he satisfied the, the, the wrath of God, that he satisfied the justice of God, that he is the heir of all things, and that he is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. 
It's not enough to know those things. It's not enough to even agree with those things. You must trust. You must come to the point in your life where you acknowledge and, and trust that Jesus did those things for you. Have you reached that place in your life? Have you reached that place in your journey on this earth where you have come to the point where you said, yes, I trust that Jesus died for me. I believe that that, that, that load that he bore upon the cross was for me. I believe that he satisfied the, 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 the justice of God that I deserved. I believe that he died for that sin that I committed last week that made me think I probably shouldn't come to church this morning because I'm such a wretch. Have you come to that point in your life? Do you trust him? Have you placed your soul in his hands? Have you placed your eternal destiny? Listen, you are going to live forever and ever. You are going to exist forever and ever. Have you come to the place in your life where you have said, I entrust my soul to Jesus, that what he did was enough, that God is satisfied, and I trust that God is satisfied. I am going to enter to the great white throne of judgment with no other plea than that Jesus died, and he died for me. Do you believe the report? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do pray that there would be none here this day who would not believe this message in the sense of, of saving faith, in the sense of trusting Jesus for their eternal salvation, trusting that he died to save them from their sins. Father, let us not leave this, this building, let us not leave this world without having the righteousness of Christ given to our account, without having Jesus who has paid for our sins. And, O oh Lord, I, I pray for all of us to appropriate the truths of this text. There is great gospel encouragement here. There is, there is much encouragement for the sinner that you are, you are pleased with the sacrifice of Christ, that he is pleased with the anguish of his soul, that he has no buyer's remorse, that, that he is satisfied with, with the purchase of the church, that in his mind it is worth it. It was worth it. All the travail and anguish of his soul was worth it. And that, Lord, he interceded for us. That he interceded for the transgressors. That this is not for the righteous one. This is not for the perfect. That, that this good news is for the transgressor. The one who breaks your law. The one who, who has overstepped the boundary line. The one who is filled with iniquity and sin and transgression. We pray today, Father, that your arm would be revealed. And your power to save would reach to even the, 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 the worst of sinners, that your power might be displayed, that Christ might be glorified, and that the triune God might be glorified in him. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.